This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. From the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and beaming out across all of space and time, this is Star Talk, where science and pop culture collide. Welcome to the Hall of the Universe. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and tonight we're going to explore the power of art and science to inspire change. Featuring my interview with actress and playwright, Anna DeVere Smith. So, let's do this! To my co-host tonight, comedian Eugene Merman. Eugene, give it up. And joining us is social scientist Dorothy Roberts. Dorothy, welcome. Hello, hi, thank you. You are professor of law, sociology, and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. So right down in Philly? That's right. Yeah, there you, there you go. Founding director of the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. This is, these are big topics. They are. They are, especially together. Especially all in one. And we're going to add art. You're a busy person, I am sure. Mm -hmm. We'll be tapping your expertise tonight as we discuss my recent interview with writer, performer, Anna DeVere Smith. She's known for her roles on TV shows like The West Wing and Nurse Jackie. And she pioneered the genre of documentary theater. Who would have thought that was even a thing? She plays multiple real-life characters in a live one-person show. And I asked about any early experiences with math and science that may have helped shape her creative path. So let's check it out. I was afraid of math. I don't think that's like uh-huh. a big deal, right? I was okay in geometry because I, I did very well in geometry because it's logic. Okay. Uh, I wasn't good at calculus. Um, and but you took that, calculus? Yeah, we had to. Yeah, it was required. Wow. Did it affect you in any way? 
the science classes? Did you see the world a little differently? Well, I'll tell you this. I think I didn't think that I had any ability in it. Uh, I don't remember having trouble in biology or chemistry somehow, but it, it didn't make a mark on me. It was more that I always thought that scientists were inventors, and that was interesting to me. Oh. And way back in some class, third grade or something, I I played Thomas Edison's mother <laughs> in something that ended up on television. Really? Like local television. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so I thought that that, I remember thinking it would be fun to invent something. That, would be, I, a, that I, would be a pretty annoyed mother, given what you know he would experiment yeah, with. Yeah, I was annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom. That's all I remember. I was yelling at him to come out of the barn or whatever. <laughs> the reason why I ask is whether or not someone becomes a scientist, often taking a science class and possibly enjoying it. Yeah. Or a math class and possibly doing well in it. Yeah. Can actually affect how you think later on, mm. how you logic things through. Well, I, I, well, so no, I didn't do that. But I will say that I'm fascinated with scientists. I do still believe that they legitimize things. I put a scientist in Fires in the Mirror, which was not my first play that I wrote this way, but the first breakout play. I put a physicist in it. Who, well, that had to come from somewhere. Yeah. And, People just don't think, gee, I think this play needs a physicist. Yeah, well, no, yeah, yeah, I, I thought that <laughs> no, it was... No. No, I did. Well, yeah. How many? Stop there. How many playwrights? How many? Anybody says, "Hmm, this needs a physicist right here." Nobody says that. That yeah. had to come from somewhere. Well, the title of the play was going to be "Fires in the Mirror." Fires in the Mirror. And I thought that I would um, deal with what a mirror really was. And I'm I'm always interested in metaphors, and when I can make a jump like that, like bring something into a play about race, who would expect a physicist, as you say, then I think it wakes the audience up a little bit. So, Fires in the Mirror is Anna's one-person play about the race riots in Brooklyn in the 1990s. I think I remember those, too. And so, I mean, Dorothy, what, what do you think about Anna bringing a physicist into a story about race relations? Well, as she said, it wakes up the audience because you don't expect it because we're so used to these divisions that scientists have one way of thinking about reality and artists another way and then policymakers another and social scientists another. And they're so often divided from each other instead of thinking about how we can contribute to each other's view of reality. And so I think she it was genius. She should be head genius. of the department or something. You've got to make her head. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> that kind of point no, of view. No, I'm avoiding that. But, uh... Yeah, there's a lot of paperwork. You actually don't want to be exactly. head. You want to be right below it where you get to really do the stuff. That's, you, that's exactly right. Yeah, I know. Exactly right. Somebody give me a master's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm interrupted. I'm sorry. No, so, yeah. I think it's genius, as Anna DeVere Smith is, to bring together these different perspectives, and it forces people to think about the world differently. Because it's almost, like, comical. I mean, in a sense, it, Eugene, do you think I plays think, and TV should have more physicists in it? I can think of a lot of situations in my life where I could have really used a physicist <laughs> that, where, where I would have benefited. So, Dorothy, Anna played Thomas Edison's mother yeah. in third grade. Yeah. So how important is it for kids to have performance opportunities like that? 
It's really important. A lot of children are in situations where they don't have the structures that allow them to imagine being an inventor, for example. I actually want to play a game where you both have a chance to guess whose oh. mother of invention this is. So, oh, okay. So I'll read a quote, mm -hmm. and you guess, guess the person. If you don't have anything nice to telegraph, don't telegraph <laughs> at all. Um, I don't remember who invented the telegraph. I mean, Edison, like, perfected the telegraph. Yeah, this wasn't about who made it perfect. Oh, yeah, no, I forgot But who... let me, let's, uh, what if I, uh, one, two... Oh, Morris, Samuel Morris? Yeah, his mom. Oh, his That's mom, okay, doing. okay. Now you get so the you game. You gave me a hint. I... Yeah, 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 yeah I'll give mom. you a hint. Yeah. I'm not trying to trick you. Okay, <laughs> okay, Samuel Morris. Okay. Okay, mom, yes. I told you not to go out in a thunderstorm... Oh, I have to answer. Okay. Oh, you, you in Philadelphia, lady. Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Yeah. Because Benjamin. I, you know, right. I mean, coming from Penn, if I didn't get yeah, that you answer, that one. We, then I might yeah, be yeah. rotate sure you of the off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> like in game shows, right? <laughs> I don't care if you invented it, so help me, I will turn this car around. <laughs> That's pretty easy. Henry Ford. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, no? Actually, the no. Is, no it's, that it's, was oh. a trick. That was a trick question. I didn't know it was a trick question, <laughs> yeah. but... Okay, no, no, it's, it's, it's Carl Benz. Yes! Yeah. Wow! Yeah. Nice. That's good. I'm invented impressed. the internal combustion engine. Oh. Yeah. Before then, they had cars, but they, were like, ran on, on like, steam. Yeah. Remember, we had steam power. We called them trains. Wow. Trains, right? And they said, let's make a car out of that. But then you had to, like, shovel coal into it. You know, it was just not convenient. So, yeah, Carl Benz and his niece, I think, was wow. named Mercedes. And oh, so you get Mercedes-Benz. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds, that sounds made up to me. Sounds believable. I mean, those cars exist. I don't know. I think he just made it up. But we'll on. see. Just, just when I say sounds like it's made up doesn't mean it's made up. Right. I'm just saying. I could say stuff. Yeah. We'll look it up later, Mr. Liar Pants. Okay, who said, whose mom said this? If you don't have anything nice to tweet, don't tweet at all. Ooh, who invented Twitter? Ooh. No, it's not who no. invented Twitter. It's uh -oh. whose mom said that. And by that, I mean... Oh, that'd be Donald Trump, of course. Well, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's right. These aren't all inventions. Not what it says here, but you're, you're probably right. But what, what, what's the official answer? That's a good answer. Oh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's mom. Oh! <laughs> I liked your answer. My, I, that, yeah, yeah. I had a way better that answer was, than yeah, that yeah. one. Right. That was yep. great. So I asked Anna. Remember she spoke in that last bit about metaphors. Mm -hmm. she, the, the mirror was a yeah. the subject. And so I asked her more about the science-inspired metaphors in her one-person play, Fires in the Mirror. Let's check it out. If you want to see the stars, you make a big telescope. And if it's not perfectly parabolic, two stars are going to look like one. And then you've blown it. And I was using that, I don't even think the audience necessarily got it, to suggest that in the study of race relations, if we mush it all up, we can't possibly really fix it. It has to be very distinct. We need a big telescope. We need a, we need a mirror. You need good optics. We need good optics. Yeah. See, there are metaphors out there. Yeah. By the way, I was thinking that pre-fires in the mirror, when I was trying to write something about race, I knew I was doing that. Again, one of the first people I went to talk to was a geneticist named Marcus Feldman at Stanford, 
who... You've been all into science for I way have, back. I really have. And he Don't studied... pretend like you hadn't done some science, girl. He, stu he studied uh, twins. Uh-huh. Um, and he was trying to, you know, fight down Shockley and all those people. And I went back again when I wrote a, a play about... that included some stuff about Thomas Jefferson. The story was breaking about how... Uh, Sally Hemings had had Jefferson's children, and as you know, somebody came up with the DNA and all that. So, yeah, I mean, scientists are very, very important. Actually, I think of Sally Hemings having her own children, but... And that is too, that's well said. I never heard anybody put it that way. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, as sitting here talking to you, I realized that for some reason that I can't answer, I always want to have a scientist as a part of my research and then if I, if I can get them into the play, I want them in the play. So, so Dorothy, are there any favorite metaphors that you might gravitate to when you're teaching students about social issues? My favorite, I think, or at least one I gravitate to a lot, is a lens that there are multiple lenses with which we view society. And some are rose-colored. Some are rose-colored. Yeah, yeah. uh, some are distorted. But Funhouse mirrors. <laughs> d d yeah, and, uh -huh. but depending on where your place is in society, you may have a different, you will have a different lens. And so it's important to look at lots of different lenses. I often say let's use a critical lens to look at assumptions that have been passed down and that many people just, adopt without questioning, how can we critically look at them through a particular lens? That's a lens to analyze all other lenses. Super yeah, lens. that's true. That's, that's right. A super <laughs> lens. I try to give my students a super lens to look at. That's my lens. Yeah. So uh, she, she swiftly and briefly mentioned William Shockley, who's a yeah. physicist, uh, was a physicist at Bell Labs, co-inventor, co-discoverer of the, the transistor. Um, <laughs> Just another answer. <laughs> of the well, transistor. It's so bad to say bell. <laughs> he discovered the bell? <laughs> uh, bell Telephone Laboratory, the research arm of the bell system. Wow. And uh, he discovered the, the transistor, which okay. transformed modern electronics. Mm -hmm. We could go from tubes that you'd have to swap in and out of TVs to tiny little electrical components. And he uh, later... Decide, after he won his Nobel Prize, he just thought it'd be really cool if he bred uh, Nobel Prize geniuses, and so he started a sperm bank right. of Nobel Prize sperm. Right. But he wasn't one of those like creepy people who, like, used his people own. were yeah people were like I'd I'd like to anyway you get it. <laughs> he wasn't like a sneaky doctor on Law and Order. Right, right, no, no, no. It was just it was a sperm bank, and yeah, you, yeah. you'd pay. And, and it was all just him? <laughs> wow. No, he'd get his, his, his fellow Nobel laureates and things. And he also, um, out of that came this... He Go was like a, He was an exponent of sort of the racial biasing as a result of that, saying, well, you don't want any black people's firm because they're not smart. You want the white people's firm. This is like part of the, the posturing that he took. And that... And by the way, that's not the first time you had this sort of case where people are trying to establish your your intelligence, you go back 100 years, you had phrenology, mm -hmm. this, this study of the bumps and wiggles and, 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 and irregularities in your skull. And there was a claim that if you had a bump here, you're a criminal type, and if you had this, you're kind. And so I'm just wondering, Dorothy, in your 
your work in sociology, at some point you have to encounter these forces operating from outside your field, yeah. influencing how society structures itself. Absolutely, and I, I wouldn't leave sociology out. Those forces exist Even within. throughout mm -hmm. various forms of science. And so this is why I say we have to be critical even of science, mm -hmm. because some scientists have promoted myths, like William Shockley, mm -hmm. that races are biologically distinct and some are superior to others, that there's such a capacity as intelligence that can be measured even with a single number, that it's inherited, and that the reason why there's social inequality, this is what Shockley was getting at, the reason why there's racial inequality and poverty and other forms of inequality, he argued, as others, at eugenicists, for example, right. argued. Yeah, it goes back. Yeah. It goes back because yeah. of inherited traits. And those ideas, unfortunately, continue to circulate today. And it's important for scientists and artists and social scientists like sociologists and others to refute those, those mm -hmm. myths that have caused so much damage. To well, you've been failing at this, so get back to work. Yeah, now. well, I, believe me. <laughs> Put it on the next I train, get back to your office. I am trying <laughs> my best to challenge those ideas. Well, up next, Anna DeVere Smith explains how blowing your mind with science can open up a universe of new ideas when Star Talk returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Life is a highway. 
And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The future of space and the secrets of our planet revealed. This is Star Talk. Featuring my interview with actor and playwright Anna Devere Smith. Let's check it out. In my new play, um, Notes from the Field, which is about education and jails and, you know, kids who can't get through school and get incarcerated. Uh, what, what's the tagline? Uh, incarcerated is all about education? Well, it's a school to prison pipeline. It's about that. But uh, school to my, prison one pipeline. of my favorite people to have talked to. The fact that that's even a sentence that we all understand is tragic. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. But anyway, one of my favorite people who I interviewed and evoke all the time when I'm doing interviews now promoting the movie is a scientist, Bruce McEwen at Rockefeller University, who's a neuroendocrinologist. And he's trying to find the interventions that can help kids. You know, now they know or they say they know that <clears throat> biologists that um, trauma and stress, toxic stress, mm -hmm. can affect uh, cognitive development, not just emotional development. So he's he's working on that. That's interesting to me. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I do look to scientists because I think they are stimulating in a different way. I enjoy, especially if we're going to have the discourse of activists, I like to have a nice, understandable scientist to blow my mind, to open my mind, and then... Sometimes they end up in my play. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Joining us now to help blow our minds with science is Star Talk All Star Natalia Reagan. Hi. Natalia! Thanks for having me. You're a science educator specializing in anthropology? Yes. I... Primate anthropology in particular? Yes, yeah, specific. I studied spider monkeys. Spider monkeys. Uh, yes, exactly. And so, so. It, what In what way should anthropology, when I think of sociology, I think sure. of people in societies, in what way might anthropology be important in discussing social issues? That's a great question. So anthropology is the study of humans. And uh, in theory, anthropology is a four-field approach. It, it studies the past, archaeology, the present, current cultures, uh, linguistics, the study of language, and also uh, biological anthropology, which is the study of how humans became human, forensic anthropology, genetics, and so on. Anna DeVere Smith is a hero of mine because I think that uh, the social sciences have an obligation, if, you know, a need to inform the audience about what we know about, you know, the fact that race, there's no biological basis to racial classification. It is it's a social construct, which is real, but it doesn't mean that there's actually like lines you can cut between the races. So we bring different scientists. So we have different scientific lenses, like mm -hmm. we talked about, you know, so sociology. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm liking bio. the lens metaphor, just so you know. Yep. Right? I'm liking the lens. Yeah. <laughs> I, love the, I love the metaphor. Yeah. And we also in, uh, involve activists. Uh, so there's performance too, because we want it to be all scientists with lived experiences. So mm -hmm. I kind of sit back and it's the scientists that tell their story mm -hmm. and use their own uh, work to, to explain uh, social issues in a way that hopefully promotes tolerance. So we have less pearl-clutching white ladies calling the cops on kids mm -hmm. because that is a thing that needs to stop and needs to change. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, so Dorothy, 
Uh, let me ask you, if, if you're talking about social issues, is there any lines of research that are just simply taboo? Because people are afraid what they might find if research and race and gender, or, uh, any of these taught topics? Well, I'd, I'd actually like to turn that around. Sure, because do it. there's this idea that th there is really these differences in deep in the biology of people of different races or people of different sexes and genders, and that it's taboo for social scientists to explore them. And that that's what I'm asking. Actually, is, is that, it but that's not true. Not that's true. not true. The long-lasting myth is that there really are biological races, when in fact, social scientists, as well as evolutionary biologists and anthropologists have proven that race is invented. It's mm -hmm. not a natural division of human beings. But yet that idea continues. And I think it's the people who want that idea to, to continue who claim that there's a taboo against it, oh, when in fact, there okay. isn't at all. It's well established, it's in science, and it's the scientists and social, you know, life biological scientists and social scientists and artists and community activists who have to come together and work to rid science and society of this false claim of biological division. It's absolutely essential to humanity, to equality, to human rights, to challenge She should challenge be head of our own department. Absolutely. No, I don't think you understand. It's just a lot of busy work, all that stuff. Natalia, you work with spider monkeys in Panama. Is there anything we can learn about human society from other primates? Well, the, they can be jerks, but we, we, we got that covered. Let the humans or the, or the <laughs> Woo, we are jerks. I, I, uh, well, I, I, this is an actually interesting study. So years ago, uh, Harry Harlow did a study, which, which is very controversial nowadays, uh, or even back then, where basically he was uh, studying macaque monkeys, and he was giving them uh, access to a real mother. Uh, some monkeys had a, a terry cloth mother. Soft and squishy. Uh, soft and squishy, mm -hmm. but still not a living being. Mm -hmm. And then other monkeys were given a wire monkey or, you know, figure. And Meaning one was a better fake monkey? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> okay. Was, yeah, exactly. One was, uh, you, Sounds you controversial. Off. Uh, <laughs> but basically, I call it like a no-duh study where he discovered that those that had the wire figure had years of basically, distur you know, emotional disturbances, acted, you know, would rock back and forth and were never this quite the same. As and they, developing baby monkeys. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and as adults. I mean, they never recovered. They never recovered. And so... Because they're... Fake monkey mom was very firm. <laughs> firm, yes, and and lacking of the love and affection. That well, they... the terry cloth mom was at least absorbent. You know, <laughs> you always I think want a you're mom to be about slightly absorbent. I've read about this. Point, study. point being, though, that uh, what, what, what monkeys uh, and apes can tell us about our own species, because we're primates first and foremost, is that we're social species, uh, and that's one of the things I think is also interesting about anthropology. We look at our species as not just a biological species, but a cultural one. And we need to be around one another. And so to be sequestered and away from love and affection or to be disciplined in a school setting uh, in an exclusionary fashion is going to lead to problems down the line. 
Uh, Anna also mentioned neuroendocrinologist. I counted, I think I got eight syllables there. Um, what, uh, Natalia, what do you know about stre how stress and trauma can, I mean, you, you mentioned the, sure. the macaque study. Macaque yeah, study? Yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah, uh, stress and trauma can affect development. There's like this epigenetics I've heard Epi where yeah. it can actually turn on and off gene expression Exactly. After you've already have a genetic profile. Yeah, so you know you're you're born with your your genome is intact, and then think of the genome as your hardware and the epigenome as the software. So you have you know your genome is there, and, and, and all epi means above, like epi epicenter. Means above. Yeah, exactly. The point on Earth above the where the earthquake actually took. So this would be a genetic influence above your genes. Above your genes. Yeah. And, and and markers, you're born with certain markers, and you and it's interesting because they can be rewritten throughout your life. So it's like a code. And and every experience you have could potentially change the markers on your, your genome. And this can either turn on or turn off certain genes that are expressed. But this means in sociology, you can't just you can't just only think of um, behavior outside of the biology that could also have been affected by it. That's very true. It, it, it's absolutely true that we have to think so about it's the now. relationship between biology and social life. But let's not forget that it is the inequality that produces these biological changes mm -hmm. and not turn it around the way William Shockley did and argue that biology determines social status. We got to take a break. Natalia, thanks for joining us on Star Talk. Natalia Reagan, everybody. Up next, we're going to explore how the science of language shapes identity when Star Talk returns. Unlocking the secrets of your world and everything orbiting around it. This is Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk. We're featuring my interview with playwright and performer Anna DeVere Smith. She pioneered the genre of documentary theater. And I asked, what sparked this unique form of storytelling? Let's check it out. A question. A question. A question. Yeah, a question. A question without an answer. A question without an answer. To understand something about language and identity and feeling. So, yeah, so it started with that question and then it, it, it ended up as an experiment. I fumbled around a lot and uh, uh, experimented. I did several plays like this. And then it takes somebody to acknowledge the value of it. And in this case, it happened to be Frank Rich in the New York Times. Now, there was a critic in San Francisco who saw the same method and completely dismissed it. Whoa. Right? Now, if Frank Richard dismissed it, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. I don't know. So, I mean, I think that's... I don't want to believe that's that. That's also the thing about creativity. But I agree it, with you. I you don't know, want it, that to be true. But it's almost like it needs, even if you've invented it, it needs somebody to receive, understand it and understand its value. We brought language into the equation, and we got to bring in some language expertise, which we've just done. So joining us now to discuss the power of language is linguistic expert Renee Blake. Renee! <laughs> Welcome to Star Talk. You're associate professor in the Department of Linguistics and Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University. That's correct. 
So, Renee, what is the science behind the origins of human language? Well, this is fascinating because we actually don't know how language originated. We like thinking of ourselves as special being humans and having language. Of course, and I think we are special. Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, look, we don't know how language actually originated, but we can actually infer if we look at present day. So if we look at uh, language diversity, if we look at language acquisition studies, uh, look at fossil records, archaeology, then we can infer how language might have originated, either, let's say, through monogenesis, so it starts with one language, and then and it's the, the language from which all languages the root, come. The root language. Exactly, or polygenesis, so that it actually starts in different areas and then it expands through time and space, evolves through time and space. So we're trying to figure this I out. I like that she said time and space. That's good. Yeah, yeah. No, I <laughs> <laughs> So I asked Anna DeVere Smith how she actually captures the language of the people she portrays. Let's check it out. It's been this big, big experiment of studying people and how they talk and how they, the fact of their having absorbed something about the world around them is imprinted on their language. But I don't know the scientific reasons for that. I just know it is so. So language, as it is expressed by one individual to the next, becomes a window into their soul. The world. The world. The world around them. As seen through them. It's yeah. their lens. It's their lens. They see the world a certain way. Right. And so I believe that circumstances, the actual circumstances of how you live or what you've gone through, begin to have an impact on how you express yourself. So you capture this and you put it on in a performance. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. That's the goal. That would be the goal, exactly. Renee, how difficult is it to capture and perform the language and especially the dialect of others? Well, I'm horrible at it. <laughs> um, but it doesn't mean that people can't, right? And so it's difficult to the extent that dialects of language are meaningful for us. It tells us about our childhood. It tells us about our friendships. It tells us about our communities. So you're not really inclined to want to give up your dialect, but there are people like Anna DeVere Smith who is actually doing this kind of very important work where she is mimicking other dialects. She does a wonderful job at it. Some people believe that more people who are more musical can do better at mimicking dialects. Oh, interesting. I'm horrible. Carrying a note, yeah. Yes, and I, I don't even think I'm that great of a singer, mm -hmm. except in the shower, but, you know. Um, so we all I, sing awesome in the shower. That's it. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, Dorothy, how, how does language and dialect influence cultural identity? Well, communities have particular experiences based on their status in society, the way others treat them, the way in which they've had a joint history, joint experiences, and so that affects the way they express themselves. So, Eugene, you're born in Russia. Yeah, I remember. And, and you, yeah, you remember when you were born, yeah. So uh, how did that affect your sort of language identity? What, well, what age were you when you left? Well, I, I was four, and I grew up here during the Cold, Cold War, a famously great time for Russians in America. <laughs> um, so you left me four, so you didn't really have language yet. I had Russian language. Russian. And I nailed your language. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty good. <laughs> Not bad, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're pretty but, fluent, yeah. yeah. So, Renee, uh, what's the most important thing you want your students to know about the science of language when you teach it? My students and everyone out there, is that 
language matters. And I'm actually using it in two different ways. Mm -hmm. So that language is, we should study language in terms of how words themselves, the lexicon, the morphology, um, the sound system, the phonetics, the phonology, how words are put together, the syntax, to understand the brain and how the brain works and communication, but also matters of language. Um, language matters in terms of the fact that we can change through language how we treat people, that we can be change agents using language, that language has the capability of hurting, but also has the capability of changing the world for better. My goal is for students to understand that the better world is the world where we can use it for the good. Um, and then how do we, when it is used in a bad way, how do we recognize it and how do we turn it on its head? And how do we challenge notions uh, through spoken word? Language for a better world. Very cool. Renee, thank you for joining us on yeah. Star Talk on our language segment. Up next, we explore the language of science when StarTalk returns. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona. La vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hey, we want to give a big shout out to some of Star Talk's Patreon supporters. A big thank you to John Janusz, Peter Cronenberg, and Jane Tanner. To hear your name here and to get other benefits like ad-free audio and video episodes, visit patreon.com slash StarTalk. The future of space and the secrets of our planet revealed. This is Star Talk. with actor and playwright Anna DeVere Smith. And her show, A Rap on Race, acts out a conversation recorded in 1970 between anthropologist Margaret Mead and essayist and novelist 
James Baldwin. So I asked about the dynamic of that famous and unusual conversation. Let's check it out. They fought a lot, and the fighting was very often about the, because Meade wanted to know facts. Margaret Meade, the scientist. The scientist wanted to know, talk about facts, and he only wanted to talk in metaphors. And it was very frustrating to her and to him, you know, at that moment in the Black Revolution or whatever, he was, I don't care about your facts because I think they're lies. Oh. And I, to me, that's almost the most interesting thing about it, is the scientist is the fact finder and the artist as the metaphor maker. So, Dorothy, do you, do you share that view? I actually have a bit of a problem with the view that uh -huh. scientists are fact finders and artists are metaphor makers, as if those are two separate ways of explaining reality, when in fact, scientists produce metaphors and artists help us understand facts. So I think it's not as clear cut. And you know, James Baldwin was not saying to Margaret Mead, I don't care about facts. He was saying, your interpretation of reality is wrong and it has harmed black people. That's, that's what he was saying. Mm. Uh, that certain forms of racial thinking and mythology make it difficult for many Americans to reach reality. It, it makes reality hard to reach. And that is almost a scientific statement. You know, how can we reach reality? And he recognized that racism blinded many white Americans to the reality of racial inequality in America. And that's what he was referring to, I think. Well, our Star Talk fan base had questions of their own on this topic, which brings us right now to Cosmic Queries. All righty. Where we take your questions about your favorite scientific metaphors. Uh, Loretta Zada in Charlotte, North Carolina asks, imagine when chemistry became biology and the first cell divided itself, producing a second one. Can we use Adam and Eve as a metaphor for that moment? Ooh. Mm. Ooh. No apple. Ooh. <laughs> okay, but it ends really quickly. It just, because, because, um, Adam and Eve don't divide. No. Well, there's a rib. <laughs> <laughs> that happened before. <laughs> that was to make them in the first place. They didn't you keep using ribs right. to make their kids. Yeah. Right? Well, not everybody, but some did. Right. Right. They didn't just like like amoebas divide. Well, I don't know. It's the very uh, yeah, you're right. I think the idea that it's the first. So here's one. Here, here's one. Okay. There's the mitochondrial Eve. Mm -hmm. So you can go back in the tree of life and find. Sorry, you go back in human ancestry right. and find the woman mm -hmm. who is the mother of everyone who's alive today. Mm -hmm. And she has, for some, been called the, the mitochondrial Eve, like the first woman. But in fact, she wasn't. The, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So while she's the mother of everyone who's alive today, she's not the first woman, mm -hmm. nor was she the only woman at the time. Mm -hmm. 
There were other women, it's just that none of them have descendants that are alive today. So in that sense, you know, so the religious communities grabbed onto it. We have found Eve, mm -hmm. but fine, but that as a metaphor only works so far. Mm -hmm. And you, you part the curtains and there's much more going on there that does not apply to Eve. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll like this one also. Okay, what do you got? Uh, Starfarer14 on Twitter asks, if Newton had found himself under a tree on Jupiter, ignoring the lack of solid surface, Thank you. Uh, would he get a concussion or worse? Oh, okay, so Newton was not actually hit in the head with the apple. Oh. No. He saw an apple fall while the moon was in the sky. Oh. And he wondered whether the same phenomenon was responsible for both. And most people say, well, this is an apple falling. How could it possibly relate to the moon? But he was so brilliant, he went deeper than the surface features and said, this is precisely the same thing. Both the apple and the moon are falling towards Earth. Mm. So the difference the is the moon has a sideways speed, so that as it falls towards Earth, it never actually reaches Earth. Oh, and he described the very first <laughs> orbit. So they both fall towards Earth. One has sideways motion, the other doesn't. Mm. And There's in fact, when you see spaceships launch, they say, oh, it's going into space. No, it's going horizontally into orbit. Very quickly after it launches, it goes sideways. Right. Most of the energy of those engines is to get enough speed so that as it goes sideways, it doesn't fall and hit the ground. It goes downrange far enough so that by the time it fell a foot, mm -hmm. the curvature of the Earth oh. curved a foot. Cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You got that? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah so uh, I think the flat earthers, it's a plot to have them all shot into orbit on the first time we get to send tourists. I think so it would be worth this, a project that sent flat earthers into space. <laughs> you didn't say, though, if he would get a concussion if a tree fell. Oh, okay, so if... the Okay, so an apple... The, your skull is harder than an apple? Yeah. So what would happen is the apple would fall and just crush on his skull. It's not going to break his skull. Your skull even is very hard. Even on Jupiter? Even on whatever... The, Jupiter doesn't make the apple harder. Why not? Because it's an apple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That meaning it doesn't have make it. Uh, so the way to so do this is no if it was gravity. a coconut that didn't fall very far and it hurt on Earth, and then you're on Jupiter, yes, it would crush a skull. But an apple would no. Well, no. how fast you could you could probably could you shoot an apple so fast it would crush someone's skull or no? I don't think I, I, I don't think so. Or what about the height? Because they always say you could drop a penny from a tall it's much building. Harder. Penny's much harder. Yeah. Oh, how I'm saying I can take I can take an so apple. The height. Okay, and smash it with my fist. Very impressive. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been Star Talk. That's <laughs> the end of the. No, I'm just saying if the thing is crushable. And you have a hard head, your head will crush the apple. Okay. You worry about the safety of the apple, not the safety of your head. That's what I tell you. But kids. if it's a coconut, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a 50 50, you know. No, that's terrible. Yeah, totally. Don't drop yeah. a coconut on Jupiter, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go to commercial. Up next, Bill Nye, the science guy, gives his thoughts on the symbolic power of art and science when Star Talk returns.
unlocking the secrets of your world and everything orbiting around it. This is Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk from the American Museum of Natural History. We're talking about the power of art to inspire change. And my buddy Bill Nye has a dispatch for us on that topic. Check it out. Why do we create art? Well, I claim it's to evoke emotions, to make you feel something. Now, these open-work sculptures were created by an artist named Simon Rodia virtually single-handedly in the 1920s. They're in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, and they're called the Watts Towers. Now, when I'm near them, I, I feel their imposing height and their strength. But when you look closely, you see they're adorned with mosaics of subtle beauty that were created from artifacts found right here in the local community. Now, these towers have come to stand for the strength required to fight injustice, because after all, they're in the Watts neighborhood, which was infamous for the riots of 1965 in which 34 people died. Those protesters were angry and very frustrated with the way things were. But as angry as they were, they did not touch the towers. Somehow their subtle beauty reminded people of the strength required to fight injustice and to appreciate the beauty around us. They're really something. Back to you, Neil. Dorothy, um, Anna DeVere Smith's play Twilight Los Angeles, 1992, which I've seen twice, actually. Once live and another one once on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, it addressed the riots in Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict came through, where the police were judged not guilty. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, as a sociologist, how, how do events like that reshape society? It, because it's not, just a, it's not just a thing, oh, look what happened. It's, we're, we're on a different path after that, aren't we? Yeah, because the protest is a message to society that there has to be change. It's usually by people like the uprisings in LA that Bill and I talked about and that Anna DeVere Smith uh, performed about people who don't have other means to change society because they've been excluded. Uh, there may be barriers to voting. There may be barriers to becoming a politician. There may be barriers to having TV shows or op-ed pieces in the paper. And so without the ability to protest, without people listening and watching, there would not be the changes that we've seen in America today without those kinds of protests of everyday people who rise up against the injustices they see in their community. So these are pivot points. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I had one final question for Anna about the purpose of her performance art. So let's check it out. When you perform in voices, is your objective to effect change in our culture for people having seen you? Or are you just, or are you putting ideas in people's heads where they go off later on and then they're just changed and they might not even know why? Is that a fair question? Uh, it's a very fair question. I mean, my work is very emotional. You know, it sort of starts, with tends to start with rage, and then you go to grief, and then you go to, 
you know, love. It usually, you know, moves along. It's an emotional journey. And I do want people to do something about the fact that... Act you know, on it. Act on it. I want them to, I want them to, you know, run for office. I want them to write checks. I want them to, you know... Whatever's in your power of action. Just do it. That interview in my office was with an artist. And we spent the time talking about how to spawn positive forces on our society. I do science. And without a TV show, without a book, without some means of reaching the public, no one would have any clue what I'm doing. I'm in my office, I'm in a lab, I'm in an observatory. That's true for most of science. Most people don't even know a scientist. And so, I've always valued artists who reach for science to help them tell their stories. I will go as far to say that art is a source of meaning for what it is to be human. And science has no meaning without art to express it. That is a cosmic perspective. You've been watching Star Talk. And I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And I want to thank Eugene Mernon. Dorothy Roberts. And as always, I bid you to keep looking up. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.